Hey guys, so this is once again practice for a podcast that I may not be able to be on. Uh, these episodes will stay up for a little while. Uh, sorry if they're clogging your feed, but hopefully uh, they can be informative because I'm trying to incorporate the best of what I know. So just to practice kind of talking points I'm going to have, sound bites I'm practicing for, for this podcast and playing around with. Um, first, my intro. Uh, okay, so hey, Pete, thank you for having me on. You know, uh, you. this is not only my favorite neurofeedback podcast, it's probably my only one. Um, I just love all the guests that you have on. You have such a variety. You're always learning from them. And if I didn't know otherwise, you know, how sharp you are, you're smart enough to have the best co-host you could possibly have. Um, Jay already knows this, but... Uh, he has helped so many people, including me. He's touched my life in a very important way. And I don't know that he can ever be thanked enough, uh, by the people in this community and all the people that he's touching, uh, not just individually, but through the people he teaches. So thank you again. Thank you to both of you for creating this platform. Um, yeah. So the way I found out about neurofeedback, honestly, uh, I was a person for whom meds were not working. I had a movement condition uh, for which I, I saw several neurologists and they gave me the best you know, drugs for seizures and anticonvulsants, none of which worked. And in fact, I got side effects. Now the side effects weren't, you know, it exacerbated my symptoms in all cases. There was very temporary relief followed by exacerbation. So when you have a major problem like that, and the traditional medical approach is not working for you, you get very curious and you begin to wonder. And there was just something in the back of my mind saying to me, uh, this is not um, enough. Medicine, there's got to be another way. Um, one of the problems with medicine and why I wish that we could get the medical community to be involved in this is, you know, I listen to Andrew Huberman of Stanford, his podcast all the time. And he's a neurobiology professor, but he spends hours talking about serotonin and dopamine, all of which are things that psychiatric drugs are seeking to elevate or alter. Um, and the problem with that is the drugs are, you, you are not seeking, the end result you're seeking is not more serotonin. You're seeking a firing of the neurons themselves. The neurotransmitter is just the first step or one of the first steps to get the neuron to fire when it's supposed to. And as Jay can, I know, can attest. And the neurotransmitters, you know, I've heard it said even within traditional medical community, you don't just want serotonin flooding your whole brain. You want serotonin where it needs to be. But unfortunately with drugs, they're not targeted. So that's another flaw. And the other problem with drugs and supplements even uh, is that all psychiatric, well, I shouldn't say all, but many psychiatric meds of which I'm aware, and I'm hearing even meds of other natures, produce a phenomenon called desensitization and downregulation. I have a UF pharmacology professor friend at the med school, and he'll tell you about this, but you can read about this online. Desensitization is when the brain loses sensitivity to that neurotransmitter that the drug is increasing or the compound that the drug is uh, increasing. And downregulation is where the brain will lower receptors for that drug or for that neurotransmitter. It happens with uh, supplements as well. And why would the brain do that? Um, 
my understanding is the brain is seeking to maintain some type of homeostasis because it's better for survival. Um, you guys have probably all heard this, but you're not just trying to be happy all the time because that wouldn't be good for survival. Yeah, and you you also you want yeah. So I work in the health and fitness space. Um, I do research and also social media for um, among others a nutrition PhD. Uh, he did one of the first ever books on intermittent fasting. And I'll tell you, working in that industry for a long time now, what you find out is you can have the best program in the world, but if you don't have the psychology and the neurophysiology to support it, you're not going to be able to adhere to the diet and the exercise program. So that's why I loved uh, when you and Jay were talking last episode about how when someone is having compulsions to eat or even other behaviors like addiction, what is really happening is that they have reward sensitivity issues and I'm really coming around uh, and it occurred to me back then that it wasn't that these people had poor character, it's that there's something different about their brain that's getting in the way. And so I think, I hope that researchers come around to that. And I know that you guys' advice could help a lot of people. How did I get into neurofeedback? So the way I got into it is I had an issue I was trying to fix. Um, I have a movement disorder um, and I was prescribed uh, medicine from neurologists that was not reducing the symptoms. And in fact, it was exacerbating them. And we tried basically, you know, I had multiple doctors say, look, we've tried all the, me- the, the, the different types of anticonvulsants, anti-seizure medications, and it's not working. So I knew there had to be, and I just hoped that there was something else out there, something missing about how can I get these neurons to fire the way they need to, or rather stop them from firing when they're not supposed to, without the side effects. Um, and so that was when I had heard about neurofeedback, kind of resisted it for years actually. But it all clicked one day when, oddly enough, I saw an article um, about a doctor at MIT, I think her name is Li Wei Tsai, who is doing research on 40 hertz audio and visual stimulation of elderly. And so she first tried it in mice where they showed, and she's not the only one doing this, but I think she's showing the most data, which is she flashed light and sound, very simple, at a rate of 40 hertz or 40 times per second at these mice. And these mice, all of a sudden, they had the cognitive function of young mice. So, and I think since, by the way, she's replicated this in people. And so this may be a treatment for Alzheimer's, something as simple as playing audio that is at the rhythm of an important brainwave um, could completely improve someone's cognitive function. And so that was when it clicked for me, that neurofeedback, people who study the EG, that when they're talking about brainwave rhythms, that this was something fundamental to how the brain works. And by the way, he was reporting no side effects. There were no side effects. I think there were maybe one side effect uh, and it was GI upset or something out of 40 people. So this was very good. So I got excited. And I'll tell you, if I'm being honest, uh, Pete and Jay, I'm sorry to say, you know, I'd heard that SMR is great for movement disorders, epilepsy, uh, and for sleep from Jay online. And I had had such poor experience with medications. And so I was afraid to try new things. So I said, 
what's kind of the, the lightest thing I can try? And so I said to myself, why don't I try audiovisual entrainment? And what I did was I said, well, if SMR is good, maybe I can find a file that plays at that rate on YouTube. And so I did. And I listened to this for a little bit. I know it sounds crazy. I was laughing at myself. I said, this is, this is ridiculous, you know. But Dr. Sai is showing it works. So even after I did it, though, that night I went to bed, I said, this is ridiculous. But the next day I woke up and, you know, I, I don't like to tell people this because I almost don't think they'll believe me. I had significant, massive anxiety reduction. And I, I don't know what else to say, you know, other than that. I felt like a load was off my back in a lot of ways. And sure enough, I looked it up. You know, I knew that this SMR brainwave was important for controlling epilepsy and helping with sleep. But I had no clue. In other words, no one prompted me that this could help me with anxiety. But sure enough, if you look it up, if you look up SMR and anxiety, there is research out there showing that SMR, as many things as Jay likes to say about it, it also seems to reduce people's anxiety in as little as one session. You know, we were talking on Facebook in the, the neurofeedback exchange group. People, I'm among them, but even other people I know now have received benefit from training their, uh, neuro, uh, their SMR waves up and to anxiety overnight. Even people with something as simple as a drug, or I'm sorry, not simple, as um, grave or, or s serious as a drug injury. Uh, I had a friend who used benzodiazepines for years and his anxiety has been persistent and, and extreme since getting off them. And he's been off for months. Well, he started neurofeedback, SMR recently. He got an IT channel, EEG, gold standard, you know, eyes closed, eyes open, 10 minutes each. But part of his prescription from his uh, clinician was SMR neurofeedback. And sure enough, his, his anxiety uh, cleared up very rapidly. So here I was having, and after... After I did that, that listening to that entertainment, um, it didn't fix everything for me. You know, it, it helped with anxiety a lot, but it, it hadn't fixed my sleep or the movement symptom fully. Yet. So I was lucky enough to link up with Jay. Jay uh, offered, uh, you know, I was able to get consultation from him. I also want to give a shout out to Dr. Cohen uh, in South Florida at the Center for Brain Training, where, um, where I believe Jay, Jay may also consult. But um, very, very great experience. And so I got proper neurofeedback treatment that has since greatly reduced my movement symptom. Um, and I know you guys know all about that with the young lady that, that Jay helped and has since written a paper on. So uh, when that works for me for SMR and it works for others, when it helped with anxiety, sleep, movement disorders, um, and, and did, not just for me, but for other people close to me now that several people now have gotten massive sleep improvement, et cetera. I knew this was something I mean, it's like what you say, Pete, this is the end game in mental health. I just don't know how else to say it. Yeah, so I since have really become an advocate of Jay's phenotype method. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jay, or he's welcome to speak, that my understanding is these are patterns that Jay discovered, of which there may be more, but these are common ones that reflect pathology in the brain um, or things that can be improved in the brain. And um, the experience, I had a second experience, aside the fact from SMR really helping me. But um, 
I had an amazing experience. A friend went for a consultation from someone who does the phenotype method that's closer to where we live. Uh, he's a great, uh, I highly recommend him. It's Alex, I have to give him a shout out. Alex Sanchez in Orlando at the Center for Biofeedback. Um, I was able to be present for my friend's consultation after they'd received their brain map. And so this is where Alex is kind of telling them results about the brain map. And I tell you, I mean, I had a similar experience with Jay, but if these, if these, if this call could be, we tried to record it, but we failed. But if we could share this call with people, I mean, this would be the only commercial for neurofeedback ever needed because through listing these patterns that he's seeing, you know, Alex never met my friend. Somebody else did the EG. He's, he's meeting them for the first time over zoom. Okay. He didn't ask them any questions and he's reading the paper and I'll tell you one thing, this, this is the real experience. You know, one of the first things that he, he mentioned to my friend is he said, you know, I'm seeing here uh, a pattern which can suggest uh, lack of empathy. And I think this is also from Jay's, uh, included among Jay's phenotypes, reflective oftentimes of autism. Jay has, I know, a paper on many, uh, there's about six or seven autism phenotypes. I'm, I hope I got that right. This individual had elevated mu. Um, and mu, as I understand it, Jay can correct me if I'm wrong, is a brainwave that deactivates your mirror neurons in your frontal lobe so that you can focus on your motor system. And it can help make a great athlete, but if you're trying to relate to others, not so great. So this individual um, not only had Alex pegged this individual by, by pointing this out, because this is something that the individual had been told by others. They kind of consider themselves somebody who is not, doesn't easily attach to others, um, et cetera. So uh, they receive treatment. And I'll tell you, and this has since happened to another friend who's had their mu reduced. There has been a massive increase in empathy. You know, I don't know how else to say it, but this was a person who, uh, this is, this person had a speech about, they don't like to say sorry. You know, not only do they not like to say it, they don't even want to hear sorry. Okay. That is how little that they have regard for apologies. I can't make this up. And I realize it's anecdote, but I've, I've seen this now a couple times that when that mew was suppressed, uh, trained down, that individual now apologizes to others. They say, please, and thank you more. It's really, again, all I can say is if you knew, if you were close to this situation. And so when you have so many of those, your, those experiences that are transformational experience in your own life and those of friends, it's like Jay said, I've, I've caught the virus, you know, between my anxiety relief, seeing the empathy grow in my friends that are, that are undertaking the phenotype methods of neurofeedback treatment. It's been, um, life altering, but that's, it almost sounds uh, trite. You know, it, it almost sounds not enough to say that it's, it's really incredible. Yeah. While we're on the subject of sleep, um, just in case it helps anyone, I wanted to mention, um, you know, a friend was doing, um, the Ruth Lanius protocol. I know you guys have had Seaburn, uh, and I think probably Ruth at some point has been on here. And um, generally, from from what I I'm aware of, that's they do alpha down or they inhibit alpha waves at PZ uh, towards the top of the back of the head, the parietal lobe. 
And I had a friend, you know, they, they tried that for their, their PTSD. It didn't really help them with anxiety that they mentioned, but I'll tell you this, they saw immediate improvement in their sleep. And well, I, I should say with it, it materialized over the next few days and it was, it was incredible. They're, they're tracking it with a sleep cycle, um, app. And so I really think, um, you know, I've had to become an expert on sleep because that's for whatever reason, that's when my movement symptoms seem to hit. So I really think sleep tracking could be really valuable for people. And, um, but anyways, they're recording it in that app. They found out that that really helped their sleep. Yeah, so while we're on the topic of the phenotypes, um, I, Jay likes to talk about a lot about a position um, behind the right ear, the, the, temporor, the temporoparietal junction uh, at position T6 or also called P8. And, um, you know, I've had some friends that their treatment included suppressing that. And it has been really interesting. You know, I, I really, the way I'd almost describe it is, Jay mentions that if you've had PTSD, early life trauma, um, or if you have triggers, that that will manifest with um, excess, I think usually uh, slow waves there or excess activity. But anyway, um, they suppress the excess activity there and their case it was alpha. Sure enough, it has helped them tremendously with public speaking. You know, they had a lot of, um, I would almost call it PTSD. They had a fear of public speaking, and it, it was almost like they were being re-traumatized every time they had to do it for their job. And since they've done it, it has been, you know, at first they were cautiously optimistic. They're like, you know, I have a public speaking engagement coming up. I'm not sure, uh, but I'm not having all those fears. And we didn't predict this, by the way. Um, that wasn't what they were doing that for. They'd heard it could help anxiety, but it wasn't, you know, speaking wasn't specifically why they did it. But anyway, it's persisted and they're having much better time. I've since, uh, an MD friend of mine is doing that, I became aware, and uh, he is receiving neurofeedback at T6 to suppress the excess activity there. And he feels he's already gotten benefit from uh, talking to patients kind of in high stakes situations um, and talking with colleagues. So um, really cool results. And I know Jay says that activity there correlates with anxiety. And while we're on that topic, you know, we've talked a lot about neurofeedback. One of my favorite topics is the EEG and also, but also attachment theory. And so I became really interested in, can you figure out someone's attachment style? You know, attachment theory is this idea of our early life experiences shape how we will, uh, how, how our romantic attachments, how our relationships will go when we're adults. And people fall into about four camps. And um, I wondered different styles of attaching. Some of them are avoidant where they have trouble attaching. Some are anxious where they're needy. So I got interested, you know, can the EEG predict that? And sure enough, there's a really big paper on this as well as a lot of other papers about um, attachment classification by the EEG. And it's really incredible. Um, because what they found, Pete, while we're talking about T6, they found that people with excess right side alpha tend to be anxious attached, anxiously attached. Anxious attachment is not just you have feelings of anxiety over the relationship. That anxiety makes you needy. But one of the reasons you have that anxiety is because you um, believe you're not worthy and that people may leave you. So it turns out 
they have excess activity there. Um, on the flip side, though, on that right hemisphere, on the flip side, it seems like, or, you know, there's several papers that I have that are saying this, that if you have excess alpha on the left side of your head, that is more associated with avoidant attachment. And, you know, that, that, that reflects, a, a, um, a, you know, a lower likelihood of falling in love, romantic attachment, emotional intimacy, connectedness. Um, what, that makes so much sense to me because what they say about avoidantly attached people is that they get a lot of their connection or they, they supplement because they can't get connection from relationships. They try to get it from achievement. And what do we know about left activated states or people with high amounts of left alpha? Uh, to my knowledge, the left and frontal centers are associated with planning and action. Um, you know, I've been reading this book by Ian McGilchrist, um, who's a Oxford neuropsychiatrist uh, called The Master and His Emissary. And it's this idea that there really are differences between the left and the right side of the brain and that the left side is more associated with achievement. And that's another thing that they say about these people who are avoidantly attached. And it was just crazy because for me, it was like, wow, here's another thing that the EEG or phenotypes can predict about somebody that affects everything in their life. Uh, you know, I mentioned two individuals that were receiving treatment from mu. Well, that mu was in their left hemisphere. And those individuals, they're familiar with attachment theory. They describe themselves as avoidantly attached. So it was really interesting to see sort of the theories in action and see that empathy kind of grow and kind of a better ability to relate and attach. You know, Pete, um, so many of the phenotypes, uh, when I was reviewing Jay's material, um, seem to involve uh, having alpha where it's not supposed to be. You know, I think widespread alpha or frontal alpha is a phenotype. Um, and, um, you know, alpha at the interior cingulate, Jay will tell you it represents, um, it can represent OCD-like symptoms or a failure to initiate, you know. Um, lack of motivation. Um, and I've, I've even heard Jay say it, it can reflect things like OCD. And there's papers that will, will support that, that it's, it can reflect OCD-like tendencies, ADHD. Even dementia and depression can be reflected if somebody has elevated alpha, is what I understand. And so um, I'm really interested to learn that because one of the things I learned in the neurofeedback community is... Um, there are people who aren't receiving an EEG and they're just getting the therapist is just raising their, their frontal alpha. Oh, you have anxiety. You need to relax. I know some of these people and, and you can, you can, you can find them. They're not hard to find. So that, that was concerning to me. And I don't know, maybe call it the, um, um, contrarian in me, but, um, something about it made a lot of sense to me that, um, look, rather than doing what maybe feels good in the moment, you know, just like with drugs, there's a difference between short-term and long-term use. And I have heard of cases where people are upping this alpha and suddenly they're having all kinds of symptoms over time, you know, after their, after their many sessions, it creates uh, new symptoms for them they didn't have before. So I, I, I would like to get the message of the phenotype method out there. Have people go, clinicians go review these phenotypes. I just wish I could get Andrew Huberman 
and other people to stop worrying about neurotransmitters and look at it like this. Yeah, so um, with all the good things that we know about this profession and all the help that it can give people, you know, I, I often am kind of scratching my, my chin wondering, why is it not more popular? And for me, um, I think it probably comes down to three factors and there are probably more. And they're not things I'm hearing in other places, so I'd, I'd love to share them. Um, the first thing I've noticed is uh, there's two types of patients that, uh, and there's probably others, but there's a, two common ones I see that it seems not to, to be working well for, or at least they do not sing its praises. And the first one, you know, it's a kind of person that they tell me when you talk to them, they, their mood is so up and down on a daily basis anyway, that you can hear them after neurofeedback, you know, oh, you sound like you're doing well. And they'll tell you something like, or they, or bad even. And you'll, they'll tell you something like, yeah, but I, I really don't know if I can say it's the neurofeedback. And you'll say, well, you know, you're acting so different. Why? And they'll say, well, my mood is so different. You know, I'm so variable. Uh, they could be depressive or manic on any given day. And, um, I've actually met several individuals like that, and a lot of them actually go on to be diagnosed and treated for bipolar. And I think it's actually maybe more individuals than we think that have this kind of like emotional volatility. I think labile is a term that's used in, in research for this personality trait. Some of them um, may meet features of, of, uh, of, of other personality disorders like borderline. Um, but it is something I've actually come across a lot. I know a lot of individuals like this and, um, it really takes uh, a lot for them to want to say, Oh, my good mood today has been due to, due to neurofeedback. Um, the second group of individuals, and this one is, I think is a little easier to understand. Um, they are kind of an alexithymic individual. And that's a term I came across in the psychology, you know, research, which essentially it means emotional, emotion blindness. And these are people who are blind or lack insight into their own emotional states as well as that of others. And so for them, you know, again, you might even notice that they're behaving better or, or, or maybe even they're having a bad day. And you'll ask them, you know, oh, you, you know, you seem to be doing good. Is it, you think neurofeedback or something? It's like, no. Or maybe they're doing bad and you'll say, oh, do you, you don't think the neurofeedback is wrong? No. You know, they, they, they're the kind of person that you say, hey, are you angry? You sound angry. Oh, no, I'm not angry. You know, uh, uh, or, you know, you seem upset today. I'm not upset. So um, that, that and, and by the way, I looked into that a little bit. Um, Alexithymia, if you look up EEG studies on it, and I spoke about this with Jay, actually, um, it's associated with left active, left dominance, left overactivation, um, hyperactivation in the left hemisphere, or deficits in the right hemisphere is what the researchers said. Um, so, uh, uh, so really, um, it seems like it's associated with that kind of left brain personality that I mentioned earlier which is related to um, really not having insight into your own feelings and not experiencing strong emotion, um, being more action-oriented. Um, and then I mentioned there's three factors. So the third factor that I kind of wonder sometimes may be involved uh, with this industry 
not taking off is just that I think maybe maybe people are confusing uh, what is actually a rebound, rebounding or compensation for the actual treatment effects. And what I mean by that is, you know, in a lot for a lot of protocols, and this is in the research, that um, after you say lower a wave, sometimes you'll find that the brainwave has actually increased. Or conversely, you try to suppress it, and it's um, it's. Or I'm sorry, uh, you try to increase it, and it actually uh, goes lower. May even be happening. Um, uh, and so, what I think is. Um, there are people out there who are possibly pursuing the wrong treatment for the long term. It's a case of short term versus long term, which so, for example, um, I know I know clinicians in offices that if you tell them you are uh, you are anxious, um, they will rather than giving you something like SMR, which I think is more um, prudent and well described. Uh, as being, you know, strengthening those GABA neurons, which are involved with anxiety reduction, the, their clinician doesn't even give a ring, just says, oh yeah, we'll raise your frontal alpha. And, um, you know, that to me doesn't make sense. At first it didn't make sense to me. You know, I have, we have these phenotypes to show that raising your alpha uh, everywhere, um, th- those are actually abnormal. You know, those are abnormal findings according to Jay's work and that of others. And I can show you other papers that show that, uh, you know, increased frontal alpha is associated with ADHD if it's at the, that interior cingulate. You got, um, you have uh, OCD-like symptoms potentially, even depression and Alzheimer's dementia. And I believe I've, I've heard Jay even say that on your podcast recently, that it, it, frontal, it, it, elevated frontal alpha at the, can, be, can be involved with those things. So why would they be raising their alpha and getting a, you know, an anxiety relief? I think what's happening is they're actually getting a rebounding or compensation effect where the brainwave is doing the opposite, how it was trained, almost like, um, you know, the, the brain is sore. Like after a workout, your muscles actually feel worse, which is not what you were going for. But if you just wait long term, it feels stronger. Well, they're doing the opposite of that. And um, I think they're confusing short-term gains for long-term. And that may be why they're having to reapply it. I mean, I'll tell you, there's actual whole companies uh, that are, uh, you tell them they're anxious and they're raising your alpha. Uh, and I met a guy who's doing this. He told me, um, oh yeah, he loves it. He gets uh, very hyper-focused on his work. I mean, this, this I'm sure is an extreme individual. Uh, but this person told me that they've not, not gone to sleep for four days before and they love training this um, because it makes them hyperproductive. So there could be other things going on there. That's not the only individual I know that's raising their alpha to get relaxation, even though increased alpha is associated with anxiety, you know, um, if it's, if it's uh, in certain regions. So, so anyway, um, I think maybe uh, people are doing uh, stuff that is contraindicated because of the short-term effect, you know, like alpha down at PZ. Um, and I heard Jay, you know, Jay's comment on this is because he acknowledges it might feel good. You know, he, um, one thing he said it to me one time, is, uh, ideally you want to train in the direction you want the EEG to go. So if the idea is that you have, um, too much alpha, uh, widespread alpha or abnormalities, um, you have one of those alpha phenotypes, you shouldn't be raising that alpha 
ideally long term, you are you are you are decreasing. So those would be the three factors that make me wonder if people are getting. And then of course, there's obviously there's this is not standardized enough, and people are going to um, you know every provider is different, and there's provider skill, and there's you know the scans are can be difficult, and there's interpretation, etc. So um, those would be all those other factors. Yeah, Pete, I wanted to raise another issue um, that I've I've been seeing in kind of the mental health community recently. I think that we are going to see, if people are not noticing this already, a massive uptick in the amount of people who are getting long-term side effects from cannabis use, from uh, smoking pot, even from even from prescription potentially. Um, and the reason I say that. I personally know at least seven or 10 individuals that they have all messaged me and they're, they're now talking with me. They'll message me randomly on Facebook because they hear me talking about this to say, oh, this happened to me too, that they say I can no longer smoke pot because every time I do now, it results in anxiety or, and it was not always the case for them. They're a long-term pot user, never had a problem until suddenly one day, now they have a problem every time they smoke it. Another one, a friend just the other day told me, I now have to stop pot because it completely screws up my blood pressure when I, when I take it. And he said he's had a persistent headache the entire month that he's been off of it. I have two other individuals um, that pot for them, it feels good the day of. They now, and again, this is not something happened before, they now get massive things like headaches, that don't go away, and massive insomnia, also irritability the next day, you know, this is in the future, and this is protracted, this is not a hangover, you know, this is not a one-day thing. What do I think is going on? So what I think it is, and, and, and I could be wrong, but what I think it is, is I think it's a phenomenon called kindling, and this comes from alcohol research, but essentially, kindling is the phenomenon where repeated withdrawals make you more susceptible to extreme and more intense withdrawals. Essentially, the body has become sensitized to the substance. And like with alcohol, a lot of these substances are depressants. So this also may be, I think this may account for why you get so many long-term withdrawal symptoms from benzodiazepines. There are people who've taken benzodiazepines. You can meet them on, on, you know, in forums and things. They've taken benzodiazepines for a few months and they get a long-term withdrawal system that lasts years. And they're taking it as directed, you know, but, but there's all kinds of cases, you know, there and in between. But the point is, um, and they think it happens through um, the, basically that one of the theories is the body has upregulated, you know, these symptoms, these substances are depressants, you know, um, alcohol works on GABA, benzodiazepines work on GABA. Um, marijuana may touch GABA. I, I, I think it was unclear, but it does affect glycine receptors, which is not very well known. Um, and glycine receptors are inhibitory. Uh, they're, they're one of, they're like the one kind of inhibitory NMDA receptor. But anyway, um, so these are, these are inhibitory substances that try to calm down neurons. Well, the brain, remember that homeostatic principle, the brain, um, uh, the brain wants to maintain homeostasis. It doesn't want you to d- depress it for too long to inhibit it. And so they think the brain is upregulating excitatory mechanisms through a phenomenon called uh, long-term synaptic plasticity or long-term potentiation is the actual term in order that, okay, because it thinks it's a poison, 
you know, we, um, we haven't evolved with all these substances long enough to be, to be immune to them. And so the body is trying to compensate the body and the brain. Are trying to... So anyway, my point, another factor in all this is to, let's not miss the elves in the room. There are charts. You can Google marijuana potency and it has been going up for decades. People think it's only been going up since the government, you know, got into it. No, it, it has been going up for decades. The, the reason that I've heard is that, you know, selling a more potent substance as a dealer, whack when it's illegal everywhere, is both more concealable, you know, and you need less stuff to get high. And it's also more, more lucrative, you know, because you can probably, oh yeah, this stuff gets you really high. So I guess. So anyway, the, we have these people. And this stuff has not been studied as well as it should because it's been illegal for so long, by the way. So we have these people, the potency before, let's say it was 5%, and now it's, you know, 20% or something. So you have these people soaking a much harder substance, you know, um, and they're doing it chronically to compensate for their untreated, um, you know, they're self-medicating. And so, and now we got people that are doing it for pain or they're doing it for anxiety, like it's medication. You know, I have a doctor that that scoffs at the idea that this is medication because this has not been a medication is something that is um, regulated. But I mean, regulated in the sense is it's been well studied so and well described so they know that this is the amount you need for this. But that's not the case because a lot of times I've heard it. I've never I, I've never done this. Measure. I've heard, though, that a lot of these they can't even tell you what the potency of something is sometimes. You know, they have a general idea. I think I've heard. But I don't th anyway. I just don't know that this stuff's been studied enough, and I think you're going to be hearing more of this. I just think you're going to be um, it's because it, it, I'm getting new people messaging me every day, and so this is another thing. This is on us in a way. We got to get to these people that have strong anxiety conditions first, because that who I think is these are not people who are um, casually smoking. These are chronic people self-medicating. And we, I feel like we got to get to the bus to, to, to do, we have a digital alternative, like you and Jay were saying with those MPEC. And so, um, and we also are, are you know, neck, low or no side effect. And our, our efficacy is much longer. You know, they got to, they have to use whatever they're self-medicating with regularly. You know, you got to drink every night if you want exactly. Well, oh, um, and I should say, you know, there was just a, well, anyway. Well, I've got you, Pete, on that topic of that mute. You know, um, we got to talk about how uh, people do not know out there that there is potential relief from autistic ASD-like symptoms for them or their child, and they do not know it right now. Um, we have to get it out there. You know, Jay has a whole paper on the EEG phenotypes of autism, and I think there's about six of them. Uh, mu is one of them. Mu is more associated, with, again, with the um, the lack of empathy, the inability to perceive how someone's feeling. Um, but uh, the other type that's very common are um, excess activity at T6, the right temporoparietal junction that Jay will talk about a lot. This is known for, he. I believe I heard Jay on your podcast say that this is more associated with uh, not the classic autism where you're socially blind, but more the um, more the um, high functioning autism or Asperger's. You're not allowed to say that anymore because he apparently did a lot of unethical, very unethical guy. Um, but anyway, uh, high functioning autism and the, the 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 two common traits would be you know talking excessively about your favorite topic, past the point of which people no longer 
want to hear it because you're having trouble recognizing faces, uh, emotion. So those are both affecting your, um, your empathy. But there's also, as Jay loves to talk about, Pete, did you know that autistic people are 10 times as likely, 10 to 20 times as likely to have epilepsy? Uh, as the general public? Yeah. So if you look up, what is the proportion of epilepsy in the general public? It's like 1.2%. If you look up, what is the proportion of epilepsy in the autistic population? It's something like 20%. And if you find out, so this is very, this is a much higher risk if you have autism, which tells you they might, that's a sign they might be related, you know, correlation, not causation, but they might be related. And Jay likes to talk about if you don't just consider the ones who've been diagnosed with epilepsy that actually have seizures, but if you look at people with those subclinical, sub-epileptic, uh, sub-threshold convulsions in their EEG, those, um, I guess they're sharp slow waves or, um, or they're, those sharp waves, um, they are uh, even more common. So I think Jay has said, I found on the I found on the low end it's like thirty percent to have subepileptic thresholds in their subthreshold epileptic activity in their EEG. Jay says it could be as high as fifty or sixty percent. So you've got people walking around; they do not know that their child essentially has epilepsy or the markers of epilepsy going on in their brain. And Jay says, you know, his model predicts that if you give these people an any convulsive, it'll resolve a lot of this behavior. Um, and indeed, you know, there was recently a study on Lamictal saying that Lamictal could be um, how these people can get treatment from autism. It showed effect. Lamictal is a very popular anticonvulsant. So um, it's super cool. And um, the other thing is, by the way, that is ADHD and autism or, co autism or comorbid. So are these subleptic thresholds. I think I've seen... Um, that these sub-threshold sub epileptic activity is like 30% of ADHD sufferers. And Jay has said on your podcast, you give them an anticonvulsant, it, re it resolves the behavior. Whereas meanwhile, you give them a stimulant, it might actually even make their behavior worse. Um, and that makes sense because if it's coming from this subconvulsive epilepsy, it's not a dopaminergic or reward issue. So now you're giving them more dopamine. I had a parent tell me the other day, her daughter was prescribed stimulants all it's done is make her aggressive, which makes sense because dopamine is associated with left activation and left activation, anger is the one emotion. This is just me thinking right here, actually, but it makes a little sense to me because anger is the emotion most associated, the only emotion associated with left, the left hemisphere. Um, but anyway, back to ADHD. So you have, and here's the thing. There are meta studies. I started, when I got into this field, I started looking up meta studies that show neurofeedback works. Do you know that there's a meta study out there, some review of something like 30 studies, that it had like a mild to moderate benefit in ADHD, a moderate benefit in depression, but a significant to superior effect in autism. And here we have, no one knows about this. So this is, you know, I had an MD, not only is it a superior treatment, an MD for instance, there's no medical treatment. In other words, there's no real drug I think out yet for autism. They have to send you to therapy. You know, they have to, which I guess there's a distinction there, but they send you to OT. They send you to, um, they send you to perhaps there's other forms of counseling. I think there might be other forms of counseling, but, um, and then, uh, so it's crazy that people don't know about this. The last thing I want to mention is that there are stories of autistic children getting healed by SMR in more ways, which makes sense because as Jay talks about 
SMR is very useful in treating epileptic activity in the EEG. Well, I have heard that it can even restore language centers sometimes, depending where you do it. In, in the temples, I think, is at Broca's area in the left hemisphere. The front left is very, very popular. I have a friend whose child is undergoing neurofeedback for that. And they have seen, you know, it hasn't fixed everything. They stopped treatment recently, but there was a progression a pronounced progression in terms of the speech sounds they were able to make. But another story I heard is people with gastrointestinal. Do you know that epilepsy, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, autistic individuals are much more likely to be diagnosed with IBS? Well, if they're having SMR dysfunction, that kind of makes sense to me because SMR is associated with parasympathetic activity. You know, we talk about the rest and digest nervous system. Well, um, there, I believe there's studies showing that they are co-activated, this parasympathetic markers of like lower heart rate and things. And, um, and so there are people reporting their digestion gets better. And I heard a crazy after they do SMR. And I think that's true for me in honesty. And I heard a crazy story. A friend in a neurofeedback office met an individual who in their, in their late teens, like 18, and they met this, you know, they said, oh, what are you here for? He said, I'm autistic or I, you know, I have, I'm autistic. I was, I was non-verbal until I received SMR. And he said, you know what else? The only thing I could do when I was non-verbal is all I could do is moan. And people thought I was trying to speak. It wasn't. I was in such pain from my stomach, my gastrointestinal symptoms that I, all I could do is moan. And now I, not only am I not non-verbal, this is, again, paraphrasing. Not only was the, kid, the guy not nonverbal, his stomach issues have resolved. So this is information that needs to get out there. I mean, we need to study it as well, but I, we just need to get this information and this knowledge into people's hands. It's so important what you guys are doing here. Pete, we have to talk about sleep more. I know you guys talk about it, but we need to talk about it now. Because do you know, talk about Ozempic, do you, do you know that there's research, there was a study in the last year, it was on CNN and everywhere, that people who sleep an hour more a day consume 300 fewer calories. Uh, that is incredible. And they're also saying that they have better blood sugar normalization, etc. So it could have effects otherwise. But heck, I mean, and we all know that supposedly if you're sleep deprived, your cortisol is higher, which may make you hungry, prefer high-fat foods. I think your leptin and ghrelin, which are hormones that control appetite, those are way off when you don't sleep. And so that, that also is affecting people. Here's the other thing, and I know you and Jay like to mention, they think that the average teenager is getting two hours less of sleep a day, uh, a night, than, than 20 years ago. In 20 years alone, supposedly, I think, I think, I believe Jay has said that on your podcast. Um, so the other things I want to mention are, you know, uh, you know that SMR works better than the doctor's gold standard for insomnia. So the doctor's gold standard for insomnia is not a drug. The best practices in medicine, the, what the standards bodies is CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy recommended for insomnia. Remember how I mentioned that CBT doesn't always work. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, therapy in general doesn't always, it works for about half of people. But get this. There are two meta studies out there showing that SMR performed better than CBTI. These are meta studies of studies than, um, than, in, than CBTI for insomnia. And in fact, Pete, this is what they said. They said, in fact, 
CBTI did nothing to improve the markers of sleep. All it did was improve the patient's subjective reports, their subjective reported experience. So the guy's actually not any more functional. His function is not those things we're talking about, blood sugar improvement. He's not sleeping anymore. He just feels, you know, it, it's helping him with his anxiety about it, which is not nothing, but let's get the guy more sleep. Pete, I can't tell you how much it drives me crazy that these people are out there and they are telling people, um, here's how to get better sleep. And they don't, all the, their advice is just turn your phone off and turn the, you know, turn your phone off, get rid of blue light and, and, and turn the AC up. Look, sleep hygiene works for some people, but I am one of them. I could do every sleep hygiene suggestion in the book. You know, I was not able to fall asleep at a nap for like 10 years. So here, there are people that, look, if, if sleep hygiene was all that worked, we wouldn't need all these things. So here's the thing. If sleep hygiene worked for you, great. But I'm, I'm tired of it. You know, I heard an MD say, and the drugs are worse. I heard an MD say, in his words, you know, we do not have good sleep medicine. And what he means by that is the drugs are tolerance building. They, they may cause withdrawal. They cause habitual use dependency. And there may, you know, talk about the Z drugs. They work on the GABA receptors. That's the same receptor that benzo. They work diff, a little differently, but they work on a different subunit of the receptor. But they work, um, they, they work similarly to benzos. So I, I, I know I've heard enough bad things to stay away at this point. And doctors don't even want to prescribe them. You know, there are people getting them, but they don't even want to prescribe them. So um, here's the, and, and they don't work. They, the, the sleep that you get on those drugs is worse than natural sleep. So here's the thing. And SM, so we have this thing here that people don't know about. And it's, it's almost enough to drive you crazy, Pete, because I know people are suffering. I've been one of them. And I'm now, I mean, I guess I'm happy to see that I've seen not just my own, but I've seen multiple success stories of people getting better sleep. The other thing is, you know, I wanted to bring, this is a little tangential. One of the main reasons, going back to your Ozempic talk, that people don't sleep is, uh, uh, is, 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 is their weight, to be honest. So half of, half of sleep problems, half of sleep apnea, is obstructive sleep apnea. And oh, and by the way, we need to worry about sleep because it affects training. Learning happens in your brain at night. So long-term plasticity or long-term potentiation, synaptic plasticity, which is the form of learning in the brain where the connections are getting strengthened, neurons that fire to the wire, that happens at night. And so if people aren't sleeping good, you know, they're not learning. So, you know, I know a, I know a, um, a Yale psychiatrist in my town. He was one of the first to do TMS in our town. And um, I was talking to him. He will not do TMS on people until they've had a sleep study. The reason is, so he, he, he started doing TMS and he began to wonder why he was only getting 50% efficacy. And so then he said to himself, uh, somehow I think he just picked up on that. They said, you know, doctor, I'm not sleeping. Or one of them, so many of them said they had CPAP. So he realized, gosh, I need to send this patient to a sleep study. I need to send this other guy. His, after people got their sleep apnea treated, his, his efficacy rate, in his words, went from 50% to 80%, which is more in line with the studies that he is referencing. There's other studies, but that's the result that he expected to get. And so here's the thing. 
uh, he will not even treat people till they've had a sleep study. And why? Is because everything we're trying to do with the brain happens at night when you sleep. So if you're not sleeping well, if you're not getting, in particular, deep sleep, everybody wants to talk about REM. They're both needed, but that I can tell the deep sleep's more. Because Pete, the deep sleep, which is what SMR increases, by the way, Jay will talk about an SMR wave, sensory motor wave rhythm, is a K complex, which is um, these these. Um, I think it's a, a a sharp slow, or it's a it's a it's a slow wave. It is a it is a beta wave. I'm sorry, I must spoke. It's a low beta wave, which is what SMR is, followed by these delta waves, and they help keep you in a deep sleep. Um, Non-REM sleep, I believe, is when you're paralyzed during sleep. So anyway, um, it gets you more deep sleep, and that's when your tissue regeneration happens. That's when your growth hormone is released. That's when your body's actually, quote-unquote, repairing itself. It's also involved in memory consolidation, and it's involved in anxiety. You'll find studies if you don't get that deep sleep. And by the way, the if you ask your doctor how to get sleep, he's going to tell you deep sleep. He's going to tell you, you know, make sure your room's cool. All that stuff. He's going to tell you sleep hygiene because he doesn't, they don't have a silver bullet for that, but we may, you know, we may. And so here's the other thing I was going to say on CPAP. So CPAP helps half of people, um, with the half that have with sleep apnea, the half that have obstructive sleep apnea. And what they said is of the people with obstructive sleep apnea, there's some people just have a narrow airway, but I think I've read about 80% of the, the, that half, 80% with the obstructive type, the other is central. The obstructive type, it's their weight. And specifically, there's studies showing specifically it's tongue fat. So tongue fat, we store fat throughout our body. And if your tongue is larger, you're not going to get the sleep you need. So what they're saying is, um, and CPAP only works for about half of the people that it's prescribed to is something I've also read. I hear things about the seal, et cetera. But there's other things you can do that I've been trying to get the word out. Um, and SMR is not necessarily going to fix this, unfortunately. Um, it probably would help, but if it's truly an obstructive issue. So this is the thing. There's these tongue stimulators out there now that you have. To, I think you can get by prescription. There's also, um, but there's also exercises you can do. You know, Jay Gaddis on, on, uh, at the Almond Clinic, he mentioned to me, um, there's Snore Lab and Snore Gym. There's lots of sleep apps that let you measure your snoring, but Snore Gym gives you exercises to help. And there was even a recent study, you know, by the way, sleeping on your back will make your snoring worse. But there's even a recent study, Pete, that um, just doing slow breathing, breathing exercises before bed. And I have seen this. I've seen individuals where they wear a sleep monitor and they have parents where their oxygen drops you know, sub threshold. It's not horrible. It's into the, into the eighties. They do slow breathing before bed without fail. Those dips in their sleep go away. So, but the real thing is make sure you get your sleep study, talk to your doctor. And then here's the ultimate thing. So for that half that it's their weight, Pete, they really, it would behoove them not just for every, for everything, but also their sleep and their mental health, obviously now because of sleep to, to get that weight issue fixed. And, you know, coming from the nutrition sphere, we all tell ourselves, I think the best studies say about half of people is diet and exercise going to work for. So long term. So Ozempic, I'm not a doctor. That may be an issue. But they really, I would love for them to pursue neurofeedback 
so they can get these reward sensitivity issues in the anterior cingulate, the front, the central midline, frontal midline that Jay talks about, so that they stop compulsive eating and that they can get a handle on their habits. I would love to see more of that done, Pete. So yeah, that's everything on sleep that I've I've picked up over the years. Yeah, so while I have you, Pete, too, I want to mention, um, I wanted to address something about side effects. You know, ISNR actually recently had a presentation that side effects actually are common. I mean, common is relative. But, you know, as many as, I don't know, if they showed like a quarter of people or 15% will have side effects. And fortunately, you know, they're mild for most people. I think I've noticed people that are tracking their sleep score at night um, with a good app. They're finding that their sleep score is a little bit worse the night of. Um, for a lot of people, though, particularly with something like those squash protocols or reducing your alpha, I really have seen a frequent incidence of irritability. Um, it's something that I've seen um, just just fairly frequently. Um, maybe some of those alexithymic individuals, individuals that aren't, don't have a lot of insight into their condition. But for everyone else, there is irritability that comes with trying to correct your phenotype sometimes. SMR seems to be less less uh, prone to the irritability aspect. Um, but anyway, uh, the, uh, the other thing is, so why is it doing that? Um, you know, uh, alpha waves are inhibitory, so maybe once they're um, inhibited, that there's a little bit more activity. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, your brain is hypercompensating. We talked about rebounding and compensation. But the other thing I wanted to mention is, um, you know, I heard, I was fortunate to hear from my friend uh, Alex Sanchez that I mentioned, who is uh, at Center for Biofeedback in Orlando. He says that he has seen and he thinks the phenotype, the EEG phenotype, that is probably the most prone to side effects in his, his experience, and also mine now, I've seen this several times, is uh, people with uh, strong alpha at the temples, T3 and T4. And what, what Alex thinks is going on, and I've also heard this from other uh, people in the community, um, that alpha, it's not really alpha. Uh, you know, Josh Moore that you guys have had on, he told me that that alpha is, is, um, is really so-called sharp, slow transients that are masquerading as alpha. And the problem is um, what's happening is when you do your EEG, 10 minutes, I guess, from what I understand, is the filters are averaging the activity. And so when it goes into the alpha range, it's counting it as alpha. When that's not really what it is, it's going from, from high to low. And so anyway, but the point is, why is it doing that? Well, um, Alex um, is saying that he's, he, in, his, in his experience, it re reflects um, ischemic injury, which is like vascular blood vessel damage um, to that area, as I understand it or otherwise irritation, which he thinks can come from blunt force trauma, you know, concussion, TBI, traumatic brain injury. But regardless, um, it's irrit irritated, and that may be why those individuals that have that are irritable after um, doing neurofeedback treatments that are trying to suppress alpha, suppress activity in that region. Um, and the... Uh, in other words, he says in his words, the, the brain may be misfired. And so I think it's something we're keeping out. He, said, he says the only thing that those individuals can do is really uh, SMR um, neurofeedback um, at those areas, uh, which is um, going to 
activate inhibitory GABA neurons is how, if, you know, if we're taking a shot in the dark of why that would be more. And I mentioned that I, I really haven't seen people get irritable after SMR. So, so that might be the indicated treatment there. I've heard that now from other people. I think Josh thinks similarly. Um, I've also heard that ISF, bipolar ISF may be effective, um, but, uh, but uh, it also may be more intense for the patient. Um, and then, um, but I've also heard that Z-score and, and ILF, low frequency, infralow uh, frequency neurofeedback could, could exacerbate that. So I just wanted to get that out there because I thought that was really interesting. And people getting side effects is going to be another reason. So clinicians could, it would be good if they're aware of that. So people getting side effects could. There's one other thing is that, um, you know, when people hear about neurofeedback, they run out. Sometimes I tell them about it. And I tell them, get in touch with me. I have a great provider I know of, or I recommend for this reasons, et cetera. Um, and um, instead, they just run out to the first one in their community that they hear about. Maybe it's the convenience. Maybe these people are impulsive individuals because, you know, they're, 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 need, they're talking about neurofeedback because something's not going right. And so anyway, I, I, you know, I have an example of a, an individual who was 70 years old that went to a clinic um, and the first day, they gave him an hour of uh, of author method, and I believe I believe that no, it doesn't really matter what the method was, in my opinion. But they gave him an hour. He said he had so much brain fog after that visit, he could not even leave the parking lot. He was in his vehicle. He didn't know which side of the road was the correct side of the road to drive. He had to get somebody come out to pick him up, and so um, I really caution people. I guess I just think that the approach needs to be delegate. And as a community, we can't be, we, can, we, have to, we have to be wary. Just because we are a lower side effect treatment than medication, I don't think that that means that we can be um, willy-nilly or blind. Because there are people that get side effects. And I think it's a shame. There are clinicians out there that are telling people to push through side effects. You know, maybe that's warranted for temporary side effects. You know, things that are lasting a day or two. But I hate it when individuals are pushing through side effects that are lasting multiple days and are only getting worse. And so I just want to stand up for the patient and really at this point and just put in that word for them. But it doesn't make me any less excited about this technology. We just have to be more careful about how we're using it. But yeah, it, uh, Pete, it's killing me that, that we, ha we have to get the word out more because it's killing me that I am the person. I have to be the one that is the, the, the person that is telling them about neurofeedback. I should not be the first time somebody's hearing about neurofeedback uh, when it's been around for, for 60 years. Um, we need to do a better job. And I, I don't, I, you know, I'll, uh, social media is the way I'm trying to do it. But there may be other ways. And so here's something. So, you know, here's why we need to get the word out. So antidepressants can work for people, at least for a time. I don't, I don't mean to, um, I don't mean, I'm not saying this to be against medication because I think they may have their use. Um, but particularly for individuals that need immediate relief or, or, or are not able to commit to a course of treatment, etc. Although those individuals have trouble with medication compliance. But anyway, um, so antidepressants in the studies that I've seen, they work for about half of people. And by the way, you, you need apparently, I think the average is the average patient has to try three different antidepressants before they find the one that gives them relief. 
And that probably goes for other mental health. So here's the thing. And half of people's good. You know, I, I think they have their use. Um, people should be, be always consult with their doctor, take best medical advice, etc. Um, someone that knows their history. But here's the thing. Um, th that that's leaving a half of people that are that are left. And by the way, the same is true of therapy. And I don't I don't mean to I don't mean to bash therapy. That's not my point. But you know, I've seen studies that CBTI um, works for half of people. You know, and in particular, I think exposure therapy, which is the part of CBT for that only works for half of people. And actually, that actually can, tr can trigger people with really intense PTSD. So the point is, we need to get, we need, to, there's got to be, we got to have, we have solutions for those people or potentially they got to be out there. There's, there's got to be something that we can do for them um, rather than letting uh, the medical model. And that's if you can get, yeah. So um, here's something else that, and, and here's the thing on um, psychology, you know, people are getting, um, you know, uh, all these tips on psychology. And this was really, this, I think this started for me in fitness. Just like I mentioned, I knew that it wasn't just that, you know, oh, well, people who aren't fit, they just have poor character. I knew that that was true about anxiety because I had suffered from anxiety and it was not a case, you know, I could think myself out of it, but I had to do it every time. And so Andrew Huberman, he's, he's a big podcaster that, that he's a Stanford neurobiology professor. And he likes to say, he says, you know, this is his words. He says, the brain is very bad at controlling itself. When there's a problem with the brain, look to the body. And what he means by that, Pete, is physiology. He is a neurobiology professor. He means change the physiology of the brain. Stop trying to think yourself well. It's very hard to think yourself sometimes into a good mood. What he means is change the physiology. Now, he does it with supplements. But, you know, we're doing it with something. Supplements, here's the problem with supplements and drugs in the mechanism. Okay, so... Um, Jay, Jay talks about the um, ion-gated channels and the, the, the ligand-gated channels, rather, and the voltage-gated channels. Okay, so chemical substances are affecting the body through those ligand-gated channels, the ligands of protein. But anyway, so the chemical substances, I have a UF pharmacology professor friend at the med school, and what he'll tell you is this. Very often, when you give your body a substance, your body will downregulate receptors for that substance, and it will lower sensitivity to that substance. And the reason it's doing that is because, or at least it's thought, is because the brain wants to maintain homeostasis. The brain doesn't want you happy all the time. That wouldn't be good for survival. The brain needs you thinking about what could go wrong, and it needs you planning for the future, which is what may be possibly, the, and taking action, possibly the purpose of anxiety, by the way. So the point is... Um, the brain, if you give yourself lots of serotonin, the brain desensitizes to serotonin. And so that's why people have to go up on their dose. And I've seen it. I've seen people on the highest doses of all these. Some of them even have to start on it. Okay. And then um, the other thing that happens is, and that that is part of how tolerance occurs. And that is also why withdrawal occurs. Because now, let's say for whatever reason, somebody has to get off a of medication. The, you should always do that under supervision. A lot of times they'll recommend you do it by tapering. But anyway, let's say they have to get off it, even with tapering sometimes. It takes a while for the body to re-regulate, to upregulate and resensitize those receptors. The receptor is the, the thing on the outside of the cell that accepts the, 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 the chemical, basically. Um, uh, it's like the, the, the lock to the key that is the drug. Well, anyway, so, so now they have these reduced receptor counts, these reduced sensitivity. 
And so when they take the, the drug, they, um, it, or the, their natural supply no longer works there. It's called the endogenous uh, compounds in their body that were meant to provide the relief, the opioids. And this is, or, or, or GABA, or serotonin. And this is why, at least part of why, people go through these massive drug discontinuation syndromes or withdrawals, essentially. And, um, you know, you even see it with Adderall, you know. People will, um, doctors now are recommending, because of this tolerance, one of the reasons is tolerance that they recommend people take so-called drug holidays. We take two days off, usually they'll say take weekends off. And I, I don't know if you have, I have friends that are, that are, that are using stimulants, and I, um, you know, and they, they, they're working for a lot of them. But on the weekend, catch these people on the weekend, and they are a different person, you know. And they'll, they, a lot of times they'll admit to, and you know, all their energy is gone. They don't speak as quickly. You know, everything is slower. And by the way, I'm not suggesting they change their doctor's advice. I'm just saying um, we can produce, and here's why we can produce a better result. So the end goal is not more serotonin. The end goal is the correct firing of the neurons. The neurons that fire together, wire together, you're trying to get the brain to operate in certain functions. And for whatever, um, our brain wants to maintain homeostasis when you try to give it chemical, um, chemi it has these compensations when you give it uh, chemical substances. Now, it appears to not have the same dependence and tolerance for things that are altering the electrical field directly. Like Jay talks about, those are those ion-gated channels. Drugs use ligand-gated. Neurofeedback is working, and other tech, like TMS, TDCS, the, anytime we're manipulating the electricity in the brain, we're causing the neuron to fire directly. We're bypassing those chemical receptors on the surface of the cell, and we are causing um, the ion-gated channels to open, so the cell is firing. It, in a way, you know, I almost imagine that it's we don't cause the, the withdrawal and the tolerance that drugs do because this is much more much closer to using thought to fire a brain in a certain way, you know. And so our brains were in, it was closer to the way where our brains were meant to function is a way I could conceptualize it. But so yeah, so we have advantages that they don't have, you know, that's similar. And that's also why our effects are much, they last much longer. So you are, in fact, so like SMR, you are working directly on the GABA neurons. So instead of just taking a GABA drug, like alcohol attaches to GABA receptor, instead of taking benzodiazepines or, um, and, um, what is the main insomnia drug, you know, taking one of those, um, now, I am directly, Sturman posited this, and I think researchers have since, I think it was Russian researchers, have since proven it, that, or shown at least, that SMR is directly upregulating the GABA receptors and increasing the function of the GABA receptors in the brain, so that now, with the supply that you naturally have of GABA, you're using it better, and so the neurons are operating the way they were meant to operate. Pete, I also wanted to talk about ADHD a minute. You know, Jay has that paper that shows about five different ADHD phenotypes that if the doctor knows it, it can help them target uh, the medication, if nothing else. But really, what we would love for them all to do is get neurofeedback. You know, there is, Jay's mentioned it, but there's a uh, randomized controlled trial of uh, comparing neurofeedback effectiveness 
to Ritalin. And what they showed is that the Ritalin is inferior to neurofeedback. That after a year of use, and I think Jay said it's either six months or a year after, you know, six months or a year after the Ritalin stopped working, but the neurofeedback still worked. And, you know, I don't know about you, but if I could do something that means I don't have to take a medication every day, especially with your child, that sounds a little better to me. And the other thing that's really important about Jay's paper is that we talked about it with autism, but he cites that there is a ADHD pattern that's not really dopamine problems or reward problems at the interior cingulate like, like a lot of others. Um, it is sub-epileptic potential or sub-epileptic convulsive events um, in their sub-threshold epileptic activity in their EEG. And so these people are essentially having a seizure or at least the markers of the seizure in their brain and their parents don't know. And it's as many as something like, is as many as 30% of ADHD of people diagnosed with ADHD seem to have this activity. And Jay says, if you give them an anticonvulsant, apparently that resolves a lot of the, a lot of the activity. And that sounds better to me. You know, why are we treating the thing that's not that if you're going to give them a drug, at least give them the right one. And it makes a lot of sense because, you know, I had a story just the other day. So they give these people stimulants and if they actually have the epileptic thresholds, they may get worse. And that happened to a mother. Her daughter recently was prescribed and, you know, diagnosed ADHD and prescribed Ritalin. And all it did was make her child aggressive. So that tells me, and again, there's a 30% chance that they have this, these subepileptic events going on. So we need to get them the right treatment. The other thing is ADHD drugs have the same problem all these other drugs do, which is tolerance and dependence. And so, and when they're not taking it, they're zombies. And here's a third problem. They can't sleep at night. So um, I know at least two individuals that their doctor gave them Ritalin and he also gave them Clonopin, which is a benzo. He gave them the Clonopin for sleep. Now, I don't know. I have another MD tells me that's not really warranted, but these are, these, there's obviously MDs out there doing it. And, um, you know, when you can't sleep, we've all been there. So that's once again, another reason why the sleep is so important. Maybe if they got these subleptic thresholds, or maybe it's just a dopamine, you know, these drugs are, 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 are stimulants. Uh, uh, they're producing norepinephrine. They're producing dopamine. Norepinephrine is the precursor to adrenaline. So, um, like Adderall is working, they call it NE. It's working on that. And now norepinephrine, by the way, and dopamine are correlated. I don't there could be more going on there. But anyway, the point is you're going to be, it makes sense that they're having trouble going to bed, even when they're taking in the morning, that they're going to have trouble going to bed. Um, and the other thing you'll hear from these people is that the drugs just don't work great anymore. Even when they take as directed, they'll tell you, yeah, I get real productive for like an hour or two, you know, and the rest of the day it's struggling to, you know, so, um, but anyway, so th- this is another great, and again, the meta studies are out there. The papers are out there. Uh, Jay knows about them, but there's lots more. Pete, I wanted to share with you one last thing that's close to my heart. And you know, a lot of the people that provide neurofeedback are therapists and we're affecting the mind and, and, and brain. And so uh, it's good for us to know psychology models. And so something that's really close to my heart is attachment theory. And I think uh, as much as I love neurofeedback, I also think attachment theory kind of explains the world, you know, 
Um, that's the idea that uh, there's kind of four attachment styles and they relate to how you were treated as a kid or your early life experience. And they are uh, the, the two sort of um, pole, uh, opposites on the spectrum are the ends of the spectrum are avoidant people and they have trouble forming romantic. What they mean is they have trouble attaching to others and they have then they have anxious people who are needy in relationships and constantly are worried it's going to fail. Um, but these things are not just true of your romantic relationships. You know, uh, avoidant people are less touchy-feely in general. There are studies that they show less, um, they le- less gratitude for others, higher opinion of self. And then you have the anxious people, and I'll, I'll get why I'm talking about this in a minute. The anxious people, um, low opinion of self, high opinion of others. They're more emotional, triggered, and um, they think that relationships going to fail, and that may even hasten the uh, and they need others more, but that may even hasten the end of the relationship. And they're they're in your friendships, they're going to be the needy ones, and they're going to be why didn't you call or could you do you know they're gonna they're going to be more insistent about needing attention, and you're triggering them. Here's why that makes perfect sense, because avoidance in the research that I've read, and there's a lot of it, is associated with elevated left alpha. They'll also say left hemispheric dominance, alpha, left alpha asymmetry, I believe, which is essentially the alpha is higher on the left. And that makes, and, and whereas that makes sense because the left brain is associated with doing. So these avoidant people, they are, um, achievement oriented is something you'll find about them. And they don't understand why everybody gets so emotional because most of the emotions are coming from the right brain. This is something you'll hear. They don't understand why people have to be triggered. They don't understand why people are needy. And as a concept, I remember, I mentioned that they're more alexithymic, whereas these people with this higher right alpha, and remember you got T6 behind the right ear that Jay likes to talk about, represents being triggered. And that means, and it also represents how you represent yourself and how you think of how others think of you. They view faces, people with that high right brain T6, they view faces as more hostile than they are. So it makes sense that they would be anxious, have a low opinion of self. Here's the thing though, Pete, this isn't just about your attaching. This also has to do with cognitive performance and other aspects. So there's a guy, Ian McGilchrist, who's written a book on this. He's a Harvard, he's a, a, sorry, Oxford neuropsychiatrist. And he wrote a book, it's Master and His Emissary. And as far as I can tell, it's the, the best, most popular book on hemispheric differences out there. And so here's the thing. You've probably heard that the left brain and right brain, that the per- personalities are not a thing. Well, I would say go look at what they wrote. They're, yes and no. What McGilchrist says is the differences are subtle but significant. And you know, what was really debunked, I think, a lot of times is just the idea that right brain people are created, left brain people are, 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 are intelligent, uh, are, are logical rather. What McGilchrist points out is... Um, he says it's actually right brain people are more accurate in, yes, social intelligence, because your social intelligence apparently comes from your front right brain, which, by the way, is associated, front right alpha is associated with anxious attachment, but it comes from your front dominant, uh, front right brain, and um, they are better, though, also moral intelligence, so moral processing, a lot of it is going on, on the right side emotional intelligence, yes, that kind of makes sense because they're actually aware of their emotions, whereas the left activated and dominant individuals 
are elect, more likely to be alexithymic, and people with right brain deficits are more likely to be less alexithymic. But he says they're also better at cognitive intelligence, whoa, visual intelligence, and even, he says, something as basic as perception, their visual perception. And he says, this is in virtually every test his lab has ever tried. And you know what? Even if you don't believe McGilchrist, I went about and I tried to vary this. So they can show it in stroke data. You know, people who get a right brain stroke, so now that left brain is dominant, a classic symptom is lack of empathy. And I've even had people message me on Facebook that um, that they uh, will um, have a relative that's had a right brain stroke. And the family said, this is two different individuals said that the family said the break off conflict for lack of empathy. The other thing that the left brain is associated with, you know, we know about the right, right brain, left brain. Left brain is associated with positive states. It's associated with positive feeling, having a high opinion of oneself. So right brain stroke patients with that left dominant, they have a high opinion of themselves, but with mania, manic-like symptoms, dopamine is associated with left brain activation. But anyway, so mania is associated with reduced empathy. So they have, and, and it makes sense, it's associated with doing things. You're not worried about people's emotions when you're doing things. Whereas the right brain people, they are. Um, the other thing that happens is their perception. So left brain people, People that are left brain, people that are uh, right brain strokes, so now they're a left brain dominant person, they are much more likely to experience called anisognosia. Anisognosia is where you deny that you have deficits. So what McGilchrist says is these people will deny that th very often when you have a stroke in one side of your brain, you'll lose a uh, function in the, the opposite side. So if you get a right brain stroke, you'll get a left brain uh, deficit, a left brain stroke, you'll get a right brain, your arm may not even, you know, your body may not even move. What happens is the people with right brain stroke are much more likely to report that they have no deficits. Whereas the people with uh, right brain stroke, um, I'm sorry, left brain stroke are less likely to report. By the way, people with right brain stroke are more likely to pro, from, um, also report hallucinations, hallucinations and delusions, which you could almost say anisognosia is a delusional state. So anyway, um, so much so that he'll ask them to touch their arm with their other arm and they won't be able to do it. And if the doctor points at their arm, these are stories from McGilker's book, um, famous researcher did this. If he points to their arm that's not working, they'll say, oh, that was your arm. So why am I talking about this in the EEG? Well, first of all, they can corroborate this in the EEG. Remember I said people with higher right brain alpha are anxious and they have um, greater uh, emotional insight because that's where the uh, emotions are coming from. Whereas people with left brain, they're much more interested in doing their higher opinion of self. They have main, they are, they are less empathy, so less concern and regard for others. And, um, but here's the kicker. I even have a study that these people who can right brain activate during a cognitive task, that they get, not only are they more accurate, and this is not from McGilchrist, they are more accurate and they get the answer faster. It also seems to correlate to personality differences. So they score higher in empathy, um, visual spatial intelligence, things like that. So anyway, um, it seems like it would be a good idea for us to notice this in our practice, you know, 
the person says they're getting better when you're raising their alpha, but uh, are they really getting better? What would their wife say? What would their close relations say? It's maybe we need to think of a holistic. And the other reason I'm saying this is if you happen to have any therapists who are in love with attachment theory, I would say start looking at the EEGs of the people with pronounced attachment styles and see, are the people with the left alpha, are they touchy-feely warm people? Or is that more the right brain people are the people who are more contrite? You know, there's even a study that the left brain people say, I'm sorry less. And so we really need to consider this because like I told you, this is controlling everything. This is, attachment is not just uh, one thing. It's every, it's it's how you deal with everything and it starts very early. You know, the attachment systems, they say they're, 80% of the brain is formed by age three or something. So um, this is very important. And not only do they show this in humans, they can show this in animal species, that the way that the infant's brain is when it's young is how the romantic attachments, how, how they'll attach when they're older. The way they attach when they're young is how they attach when they're older. Thing I want to mention about ADHD is uh, we've talked about obesity on this podcast. Well, you've talked about, and you've also probably, I hope, uh, yeah, I believe you talked about addiction in the anterior cingulate. Well, something interesting, um, there is an addiction MD uh, that I've spoken to, and he says that both addiction, ADHD, and obesity all share the common trait that their dopaminergic function is dysfunctional, dysregulated. And what that means is it's not, he says, they could have a lack of supply of dopamine. They could have a, a lack of receptor counts for the dopamine. Or they could be metabolizing, essentially breaking down their dopamine too fast. An enzyme like COMT, it's called, is, is often involved. But the point is, and it, it is common to this area, this one area of the brain in all three conditions, known as the ventral tegmental area. And I was just listening to Huberman. That is the location of the dopaminergic neurons in the reward centers, is the ventral tegmental area. It means, I think, the belly and the roof which is apparently not very descriptive, but it's the center midline of the brain, I believe. And that is likely why, or at least part of why I think that Jay is always talking about how reward deficiencies are addressed by treating the center midline. And uh, very commonly, there'll be alpha, beta, or theta there that should not be. Uh, I just read about a TMS study. I know Jay's mentioned TMS. It's a, a magnetic uh coil that is used to create a pole to um, polarize the neurons or to, or to depolarize them, I, I, uh, one or the other. And um, the, they, they just released a study that using that for smoking cessation and that they were able to uh, depolarize, I'm sorry, they were able to treat the addiction by addressing the reward dysfunction by treating it in that center midline. Um, the, treating the ventral tegmental area and it greatly increased the smoking quitting rates of their patients. Um, and so the, the last thing I'll mention is we talked about Ozempic, you know, speaking to the idea that the EEG, uh, you know, explains everything. I began just on a lark to, I wanted, for whatever reason, I wanted to know what the new weight loss drugs, GLP-1 agonists, they're called, do to the brain. And so I looked up um, the EEG and semaglutide or GLP-1 agonist. And what you'll find out is, as I recall, 
um, I have this saved that it increases theta waves in the frontal midline. And those theta waves, uh, according to another resource, are associated with dopamine release. Another source I've read says that it improves the function of dopaminergic neurons. The point of all this, Pete, is that there is a common dysfunction to all, all three disorders, obesity, addiction, and ADHD, and that is reward sensitivity. Um, and if we can treat that, as Jay said, there is reason to believe, I think the studies are still being done, but there is reason to believe and a reasoned position based on real science that uh, this can treat that type of disorder and we can do it without any of the long-term medications, the long-term need for medication and side effects. Uh, and this is another thing that is not um, commonly understood. I wish people were looking into the brain effects. You're not going to find a clinician who's aware, at least I have not met one, who's aware that the GLP-1 agonists affect dopamine signaling in the brain. And it makes total sense, though, because it reduces cravings. Oh, that's the part I forgot. It reduces. So there are reports of people, case studies of people giving up drugs and alcohol after beginning Ozempic. And it's not just in people. Um, they've shown it in mice. So mice are much are they're less likely to consume drugs and alcohol, and I think maybe even sugar when they're given GLP-1 agonists. So two things. I guess I kind of wish that people knew how valuable the EEG can be in telling you what a drug is doing, because that's how, even before you guys were talking about this, I kind of had an inkling of that based on what the EEG was saying. And then two, um, I wish that people knew that all these things are related and they're related to your brainwaves in often the frontal midline, uh, central midline of the brain. And we can treat that as you and Jay talk about. Let's talk about something else, your brainwaves and anxiety. You know, um, it may interest people to know that the first line medical treatment for anxiety is uh, our antidepressants. And why is that? Well, they used to give people these medications known as benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines, uh, they help activate your GABA receptors so that your um, innate GABA is functions more effectively. GABA, as we mentioned, is that inhibitory system in the body, uh, the main inhibitory system of, of the neurons, and it essentially tells the neurons, it turns them off. Um, and anxiety in a sense, is uh, that I, as I understand it, an overactive brain. So this GABA helps turn it off. It's very calming. Well, guess what? Um, they can't. They don't like to give those to people anymore for a good reason because we've talked about. Um, so benzodiazepines, if you guys haven't heard, uh, speaking of medication being a subpar or suboptimal, um, this is one of the more be suboptimal because up to twenty-five percent of people apparently will have a long-term discontinuate, long-term withdrawal. Essentially, they're in withdrawal from the GABA drug uh, for, for years. Two years is a common figure. It's known as pause or post-acute withdrawal syndrome, and it's increasingly being recognized by doctors, so much so that within the last few years, the FDA has um, upgraded the benzos to their highest black box warning that they put on things to warn people about the dangers, I think they used the 25% statistic. And um, the uh, 
the uh, and the problem is they just don't know. They don't know what are the factors. Now, I think it may have to do with kindling, as I described to you. You know, each time you're taking uh, any drug, really, but it seems like these depressants are really things like a GABA drug, a benzo, or an alcohol. They're really prone to this, which is that if you give your body a downer or a depressant, your body wants to maintain homeostasis. It wants to clear it. So apparently it upregulates excitatory mechanisms. It tries to compensate. Your brain tries to compensate by becoming more excited over time. In some people, it may take longer than others. Well, some people may be particularly prone to this and benzos light it up. Um, why is this happening more with depressants? Well, it feels like your brain kind of wants to be up more than it is down. Because if you think about it, if your brain was very likely to get into like a very inhibited state, it wouldn't be good for your survival. So I think that's why maybe the depressants are a bit more um, likely to produce this reaction in the body than the, having kind of the equivalent opposite reaction for cocaine. But it may happen. But anyway, so they don't like to give you these drugs that are the most effective drugs uh, for acute anxiety. And they still apparently will give them for things like panic attacks or maybe other things they're indicated for. Well, what do they give you? So they give you antidepressants. Antidepressants work on serotonin, as you know. Um, serotonin does have downstream effects on GABA. So I believe if you look at a lot of these drugs, it will increase the quantity of GABA in your system. So it's calming. But some new research is, is see, I've seen is serotonin is itself, people think of it as calming or inhibitory. Some new research is saying that it's not, that it in fact is, um, can be some types of um, serotonin receptors, 5-HT receptors in your brain, can actually be stimulating. And like we know with medications, they just flood your whole brain with medication. So it's just a subpar solution. Uh, one of the things they know about those drugs is, um, I believe they increase alpha coherence, front to back, and usually increases in coherence are associated with increased power. And having high alpha power is not, as I understand it, is not optimal for sleep. People with excess alpha, elevated alpha widespread, where it's not supposed to be, those individuals, as I understand it, don't sleep quite as deeply. So that might be another way that SSRIs, and there may be good long-term effects too, but, um, you know, I don't usually hear of people needing less of those drugs. If they stay on them, they need to go up. They tend to get tolerance and withdrawal just like all the other drugs. So what are the other solutions? Oh, by the way, the most common side effect of SSRIs, serotonin selective reuptake inhibitor, is uh, sexual dysfunction. And by the way, they only work for 50% of people, like I mentioned. And um, very often you have to try multiple. Well, and what happens if you're bipolar? So if people have a bipolar diagnosis, or even if they suspect it, they don't like to give you antidepressants because it can actually induce mania. Um, or it, it induces cycling. It can induce depression as well. Um, here's the other thing. So what do you have left at that point? Because you can't use the benzos. Well, they've got antihistamine drugs. They've got things like Atarax, hydroxazine it's called. And that is a very strong, it's like a very strong Benadryl. And I think some of the other t tricyclic antidepressants, the way they're doing it is through antihistamine effects as well. They'll give you those. Those are like a stronger one. But when you're on those, I believe there's things you can't eat, at least in the past, um, like cheese, anything that's going to up your tryptophan content, I believe, but I may have that wrong. Um, 
and 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 then they've got um, propanolol, which is like a beta blocker. It slows your heart. It blocks adrenaline. It slows your heart rate. And sometimes people do get relief from that. Other people report it doesn't. It doesn't help them at all. And what I have heard is that it numbs you, um, particularly in that with that one. Um, you become. You can become. And that can happen with some of the other medications too. Weight gain is often a big side effect of antidepressants. Um, and then even with antidepressants, I think I've heard as many as 3% of people might get a long-term withdrawal syndrome from that as well. I think brain zaps, they call them, which are kind of painful shocks. Are, those, are the, those are the most common long-term withdrawal symptoms. Doesn't mean everybody's going to get them. Doesn't, but, but, you know, there's risks. And so what are you going to do if you have anxiety and the antidepressants don't work for you, you know? They can put you on things that are like Wellbutrin, slightly different. It works on dopamine. They can put, but that's stimulating. You know, they can put you on something that works on norepinephrine. Those can also be stimulating. This is not true for everyone. But again, these drugs work for half of people. What about the other half? Now you're popping an adrenaline blocker. Now you're popping an antihistamine, which comes with a possible side effect of tardive, rare apparently, but tardive dyskinesia, which is where you can't move or you have, I'm sorry, we have movement disorder symptoms. You shake, I believe Parkinson's like symptoms. And then it's also very dehydrating. I think it may, I have this, my abstract may help or your blood pressure. And these things are all good when people need them. If they're interim, speak with your doctor. I'm not saying that we need to maybe wholesale cut out medication. There's patients that, again, people that can't commit or afford uh, you know, uh, uh, neurofeedback. I've heard them put, called uh, lane changers before. They kind of get you off the path you're on. But the point is, we may have we have something better, and that's SMR. Because remember how I told you that SMR works on the GABA receptors, and that the best drugs in this class also work on GABA receptors. Except the drugs, because they're chemical again, they cause downregulation and desensitization of the receptor, which leads to tolerance, dependence, and withdrawal. Whereas we're walking on long-term plasticity more directly, we're working on, I, to hear it from Jay, the voltage-gated ion channels, which are, involve electrical fields become the signal to the cell. When the electrical fields are the signal to the cell to turn off or to turn on, the body does not gain dependence and withdrawal effects, which is why we get such a long-term result from neurofeedback that you do not tend to get with other medications. There is, yes, increasingly ketamine and um, psychedelics in some states, uh, things like psilocybin. Um, I think maybe Oregon, one of those Northwest states, you can get those now or do them legally. Uh, those come with problems. I think I've heard running one in five people have a bad trip. Uh, this is referring to the psychedelics. And the bad trip is listed as the number one reason that people quit those drugs. And then ketamine, um, I know individuals that have personally used it. One of them, he needs to be driven from the clinic every time he gets it. You, you have to take it a bit more frequently when you first start getting it, like once a month. Eventually, I think you can move to every six months. And they do work quickly for some people. You know, I don't think he says it solves everything. He's had to pursue, he's pursuing neurofeedback, he's pursuing other things. So they may have their place, but they need to be reapplied and they come with these these risks and these kind of can be unpleasant. So, um, and there may be other things, people that, certain types of people that can't use them. Um, you know, I don't buy you, I don't want to have a bad trip. So um, we've got something safer and I just wish we could get the, this information out there. 
improve your S, increase your SMR waves in appropriate what's on a 19 channel EEG um, and a clinician's opinion. But if you improve your SMR waves, you're improving your GABA function. People report becoming clearer, being able to deal with conflict better, able to sleep better, and less anxiety, as well as less movement symptoms if they have any of that. Might clear up the epileptic pattern in the ADHD and the and, and in autism and in other conditions. All right, thanks. And on addiction, ADHD too, I think it takes away some of the stigma. I mean, um, you've got uh, people who are... Um, looked down upon often by society. I, I, there is, there are judgments applied to people who are addicts or have uh, ADHD, you know, l lack of motivation, motivational difficulties, and, and also body image issues. And this stuff seems to correspond to certain genes. They don't know if it's epigenetic or genetic. In other words, they don't know nature versus nurture. Maybe it's both. But I know, you know, the crazy thing is, so Lisa Marie Presley just died and they announced the cause of her, um, of her death. I didn't, I didn't read the article, but I read the headline it was colon rupture, I think, or intestinal rupture. And that is the same way her, her, her father died, I believe, because the dehydration of opiates is so intense that it causes, that is the... That is the common cause. of It almost happened to Matthew Perry, and they didn't know if he'd be able to live. Um, he talks about this. And so anyway, that tells me his opiates, which is the same way that his, her, her, her dad died. He was on a lot of things, but opiates was one of his, his big ones. Um, so painkillers. And so this stuff, it may run in families. And we're not treating it well enough. And the 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 clinical the clinical honestly the science needs to catch up to the clinical right now that's what needs to happen okay so the first thing i tell him is that i'm really into social media uh for health and fitness i learned from that that there just had to be a difference between what the people who were succeeding and the people who weren't they all had the same program they all had the same advice um, the difference was the mindset and I just couldn't think that they had bad character. So I, I have to think it's their brain. Same reason for therapy. Why does therapy not work for everyone? So, um, that is why neurofeedback is, um, valuable to me because you're fixing the thing that's causing all the, the problems. Could talk to him about how I discovered it. Yeah. And I'm one of the people that medication doesn't work for. I was trying to solve a, a problem. And, um, got into, um, heard about 40 Hertz, um, heard about it from Jay first about SMR, um, heard about 40 Hertz, didn't want to believe until I heard about 40 Hertz. Then I got into, um, massive anxiety relief and you get into SMR, you know, um, people are, people are uh, you can burn 300 more calories, you know, um, people are, oh, neurofeedback exchange, let's use social media for good, you know, um, the brain is bad at controlling itself, best bit in the world doesn't work, 
like the 40 hertz, you know, Sebring calls it frequency medicine. It's all part of frequency medicine. Um, the medical model is wrong or has shortcomings. SMFRIs um, do prevent relapse, but they don't work for everyone. And you have to try three medications. Therapy doesn't work for everyone. And so SMR for sleep, you know, um, talk about Ozempic that people could, people could burn 300 extra calories uh, a day if they sleep an hour more. It was a study, big study, and um, it even has effect on depression and Alzheimer's. But it's uh, it's how we learn, and um, it's important. Um, they don't have good sleep medicine, you know. Huberman's advice, hygiene, sleep hygiene, you know, and Huberman's advice on walking outside. They don't have good sleep medicine, neurotransmitters, um, dependence and withdrawal. Uh, so um, you get into um, yeah, and that this works better than the doctor's gold standard CBTI. Um, why is it not taking off? You could get into, um, you could get into alexithymic people. You could get into people who are very volatile moods and you could get into people confusing rebound for long-term change. Um, you know, I have noticed, I have to talk about side effects. Um, um, that, um, I notice that um, when you do the right protocol and you've been using the phantom method, you actually feel irritable. It's actually very common to feel irritable. What did I write to Alex? And it's very common to get maybe some bad sleep. Um, seems like if you do off or down or squash it, you get a short-term exacerbation. But if they're it happens so reliably that if someone tells me they feel really good right after, I get a little bit nervous. Um, SMR being the exception, people tend to feel good after that. Um, um, and then the opposite is true if you raise it. I know people are raising it because it feels good, but you know, so many of the phenotypes that Jay talks about have increased alpha. You know, alpha is a failure mode of the cingulate, so you're going to have attentional issues and reward and sensitivity issues and depression, OCD, you know. In PTSD, alpha is usually high in the parietal lobe, you know. And Jay says you want to train it the way that it's, that you'd like the EEG to go. Um, and a lot of people, they're raising that alpha and they're just getting problems up front. Um, so from there you could go into, but what's important to you? It doesn't have to be, what's important to me is, what's important to me is, um, autism. You know, Autism, we've got a solution for autism, ADHD, we've got a solution for ADHD, marijuana kindling. What's unique to me? Okay, what's unique to me? 40 hertz, Nick Dogris, remember Nick Dogris is doing it. Um, Nick Dogris. Um, I actually don't recommend that anymore because of what Jay said, but, um, 
how I found it. Um, mu, contractions, marijuana kindling, hemispheres and attachment. You know, we can help, we can help people's attachment. Um, so, um, there is a study out there called attachment classification by EEG. Um, and what they're doing is, uh, there's many studies now that have shown that, uh, an anxious attachment, which is where you're needy in relationships comes with, um, elevated alpha in the right, right hemisphere and avoidant attachment where you, uh, have trouble feeling emotion. You don't attach to others. You have trouble with intimate relationships, connecting, um, and actually have a low opinion of others is associated with left brain alpha. And, um, the, uh, you know, we talk about how, uh, we talk about how, you know, alpha asymmetry and having more alpha in that right brain, um, or beta, but alpha, um, might be associated with uh, more anxiety, but, um, you know, one of the evolutionary uh, proposals for why we have anxiety is intelligence. And it may not behoove you. Yes, the left brain is associated with positive state, but it's also associated with mania. It may not behoove you to be up all the time. And Ian McGilchrist of um, Oxford um, Neuropsychiatry, um, he wrote a book, Master's Emissary, about the differences between the right and the left brain. And, um, you know, they say that people that can they, he showed that virtually every test he's done, um, that right brain people, they're more negative, but they're more accurate. They're more creative. They're more socially intelligent, emotionally intelligent, cognitively intelligent, even better perception, um, better emotional intelligence and better social intelligence. So, and then there's another study where they used, I think it's called, um, there's a, it's an objective academic test of cognitive performance. One of the most objective tests and people could switch to right activation actually perform faster on that test. Now, um, you know, uh, uh, so the, but the point is that we could be resolving people's attachment, you know, um, attaching is one of the most important things you do in relationships or whenever they do, you know, studies on end of life and they survey people, much older people, um, they find out that the most valuable thing in their life and the thing that bring, brought the most happiness and correlated most with life satisfaction was relationships. So in the process of getting your phenotypes treated and uh, normalizing your brain activity, we, we might actually be helping you connect with others. And that goes back to that story. You know, the people that I knew that were having trouble attaching, what they were doing was they were suppressing the alpha in their left, in their left side, the excess alpha. Um, and they were suppressing the mute. And it's definitely strengthened the relationships. So, um, so it is, I mean, I, at this point you can't convince me. Um, the other thing that it's a correlated with is, um, so, uh, speech disorders, speech disorders are correlated with leftover activation. And there's even a study, uh, there's even a study out there showing that, um, stutter and psychopathy are correlated. And that makes sense because if you have leftover activation, you're much more known for positive affect and alexithymia, which is where you don't know your own emotions, lack of empathy. You know, a right brain stroke is associated with lack of empathy. So um, um, that makes sense that uh, 
speech disorders, which come from the left brain, and psychopathy would be correlated. Um, the other thing is that they found out, going back to that mute, if you look up mu and psychopathy, you're going to find a lot of stuff because what mu does is it shuts off the frontal lobe. And there's a study out there, famous images on, on Google, that you can look up um, psychopath CT scan, psychopath's brain CT scan. Um, you're going to see a normal brain and most of it lights up. And then you can see a psychopath's brain and basically the whole, the whole top of the brain doesn't light up. And in the words of the researchers, they said most of the brain doesn't light up. And, you know, the frontal lobe is, is such a huge part of the brain. So that, that is essentially the part that is deactivated. So anyway, between that mu and that left excess alpha, that is causing people a lot of... Uh, and those people, the people that have that report lower life satisfaction. Now, we want to address your anxiety too, which tends to... Jay talks about T6 being correlated with anxiety. Where you, if you can't read the room, he was saying the other day, if you can't read the room, yeah anxious. Um, but he's, I think he's also said it's associated with early life trauma very often. So we want to control that. And, um, um, but, uh, as far as, um, worrying about the alpha asymmetry, I mean, just in treating the phenotypes, um, you're going to, and you're not going to read much. I, I need to investigate more about treating the front right side of the brain. You know, one other thing that EEG can predict, um, there's a study that I found recently that out of 100 people with allergies, um, it was associated with right frontal alpha. There's also, I know, the whole thread that alpha is inhibitory. So if you clear the alpha, the brain can generally, can generally react better. And I think clearing the FZ will help with some of that, um, clearing the frontal lobe. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, so I do social media management in the health and fitness space. Uh, for a nutrition PhD and an exercise kinesiologist, um, and so exercise science scientist, and so um, we help people. Very often, people are seeking to lose weight. We run weight loss competitions, and what you find out is, you know, everyone has the same information. The information is usually not what's lacking. You know, there's a lot of different diets that can work. What you can have the best program in the world, but if you don't do it. Um, it's not going to work. And so I begin to ask myself, you know, it can't be that these people that, that are having trouble with getting fit, uh, they can't just be low character. And when it comes to psychology, you know, Andrew Huberman at, at Stanford um, School of Medicine, he has a saying, he's a professor of neurobiology, and he has a saying, the brain is very bad at controlling itself. And what he's referring to is, it's very hard to sort of think ourselves into a good mood. We can do it sometimes, but can you do it every time? Can you do it at the end of the day when you're tired or stressed? And so he says in his research that he presents, but also just in his opinion, um, very often uh, when you're trying to heal the brain, look to the body. What he means is instead of looking at the psychology, he likes the mind-body connection, physiological methods. So for him, 
it's breathing and supplements. Um, but I don't like supplements and I, I don't like supplements for the same reason that, um, I could, I mean, I, they're not my, they're not optimal and they're not optimal to me for the same reasons that medication, you know, um, when you try to solve things chemically, the brain very often will fight you because it tries to maintain homeostasis. Um, and so that's why you have to keep retaking the supplement. Whereas neurofeedback, you know, Jay has talked about, and there are other outcomes, people showing like kids, uh, ADHD sufferers getting a uh, benefit one year out from treatment. Uh, whereas kids on Ritalin receive no benefit from that Ritalin one after treatment. Um, and so I want to do something durable. I think there's reasons why it may be more durable. We maybe don't understand all the reasons, but I do know this, that if you try to amp, let's say you have reward deficiency and you try to solve it, which is, accounts for things like ADHD addiction, and you try to solve it by pumping up your dopamine, uh, very often uh, your body will, in an attempt to maintain homeostasis, because your body doesn't want you feeling um, manic all the time or being productive all the time, um, it will uh, downregulate receptors for that dopamine or it will desensitize them. You know, I have a friend, UF pharmacology professor at the med school, and he'll tell you most neurotransmitters in most chemical systems, if I just spike your dopamine, that dopamine will stop working because the cell will not want to stay in a high dopamine state forever. Um, the brain. So, uh, but we're bypassing that. Um, we are, uh, altering the electrical fields in the brain. And um, it appears, along with other methods that do it electrically, that you bypass some of those homeostatic mechanisms, the things try where your brain is trying to stay where it's at. And you avoid the things that drugs produce, like tolerance and withdrawal. Um, and sometimes those withdrawal symptoms can be, can be kind of major. Um, so... Uh, so yeah, so that's why I'm interested in neurofeedback. And then, you know, I was one of those people that medication didn't work for. Um, there are, yeah, I had a movement disorder, uh, myoclonus, and um, I had a neurologist and, and we met the medication route. Jay will talk about, you know, as many as 30% of epileptics have intractable epilepsy. Well, uh, my movement disorder, not only did it not respond very well, but it actually made my movement disorder worse. The different anti-seizure medicines that I tried and, you know, after so many, uh, not working, I began to get a little desperate and you get curious. And, and, um, I had heard about neurofeedback. I was fortunate to hear about it on online, uh, on Facebook, of course, and, uh, met some of you guys heard about things like from Jay SMR neurofeedback that was going to be very helpful for my or said to be very helpful for people with movement disorders um, and epilepsy, but um, I was very hesitant to try it. And so that's when I got into the 40 Hertz. You know, we could also talk about, um, it's a shame we really need to, we really need to figure out what are the core factors holding this technology back? Um, and because uh, just look at things um, you know, they say you'll do more for someone else than you'll ever do for yourself. And obviously that includes parents. Parents are suffering. Uh, ch children are, are suffering from conditions and parents are, are, are doing everything they can, sometimes to no avail. 
big examples, obviously ADHD. Um, and that's when you get into, you know, uh, the medications for ADHD. Uh, like we said, um, if you talk to people, I know, I know people on ADHD medications and very often you'll hear, yeah, it works, you know, it works for an hour. Um, and then after that, I just kind of feel jittery or I feel burnout. Uh, not everyone, you know, very often you hear they have to raise their dose or it stops working or they have to take these drug holidays. And when they're in that drug holiday, they're zombies. I mean, very often I, I you know, I, I, I know individuals that on their weekend that the doctors prescribe that drug holiday to avoid that downregulation, avoid that tolerance building, that they are complete zombies on the weekend. And it is not, um, that just doesn't seem like the, be- uh, that doesn't sound optimal to me. Um, and so, and Jay likes to talk about, you know, that, um, you know, that in ADHD, uh, as many as 30% of ADHD sufferers, they have the sub threshold epileptic discharges. They're having subclinical seizures, convulsive events that only show up in the brain. Um, Jay just said that epilepsy can masquerade as virtually anything, um, but it's really epilepsy. And that when you treat it, the behavior resolves. But if you give those people a stimulant, all that happens is, well, I shouldn't say all, but very often their behavior can get worse. I know a mom who just, uh, her kid was, child was put on Ritalin recently, uh, you know, and hopes for the best, but their child was, and I told her there's a 30% chance, uh, roughly that it, it wouldn't fit her EEG pad. Um, and Jay has a paper on that, but sure enough, that child in the mom's words became aggressive. And so it's not going to work for them, or at least that medication is not. Um, and that always goes to medication, you know, with any depressants, they have to put you on three different ones and it only works for 50% of people. So, so meanwhile, we have a randomized trial. We have controlled studies showing that uh, nerve feedback for ADHD works up to a year after treatment, and that's just when they stop measuring. And then meanwhile, the drugs have to be taken daily to function. And, um, you know, there may be personality change with those drugs. I would not rule it out. You know, um, dopamine is associated with, and they don't just raise dopamine, but in addition to norepinephrine, often they raise dopamine. Dopamine is associated with left activation. And left activation is associated with, um, these are correlations, but associated with, more associated with hypomania, lack of empathy, and right activation is associated with creativity. So I'm aware that there's some research uh, debate on how that's actually manifesting. But again, you, you, only, you, only, um, you only see what you're looking for. And so um, how a study is designed might account for that. But in any case, it seems to me... Um, Oh, cognitive rigidity. So dopamine is a reinforcer of behavior. And in the people that I meet, very often they're just hyper-focused. Yeah. They're just hyper-focused. And so um, they perseverate is what it's called. Um, you know, it's a guy, an ADHD doctor on, on the internet, Dr. Barkley, and he likes to say, they are not hyper-focusers at ADHD. They're perseverating. And what he means is they're, they, they can't focus on what they're supposed to focus on. They stay on something random. I know people with ADHD will tell me like, yeah, you know, I can be very productive, but I'm productive on the wrong things. I'll spend my whole day on a room in my house. And meanwhile, everything else I had to do did not get done. You'll hear stories. I had another friend tell me, you know, Excel spreadsheets get really interesting on ADHD. Maybe that involves not having friends. You know, I know friends that'll drop off the map 
um, depending on their medication uh, situation. So um, not optimal. And um, wouldn't it be better to preserve that cognitive rigidity? Um, sorry, preserve that cognitive flexibility, not be rigid. Those waves that Jay talks about are active in ADHD, not just the subconvulsive threshold, but you also have um, frontal disturbances and anterior cingulate problems. There's the three failure modes he talks about, the alpha, beta, and theta. And those can result, I know some of those can result, I think I've heard Jay say locked on or locked off. Um, so people are not necessarily being as productive as they can be, and this helps them. Um, and, you know, while we're at it, did you know that epilepsy is, that I found, was 20 times more common, up to 20 times more common in the, the autistic population? Yeah, so apparently, if you look it up, the, the global, or sorry, the U.S., the overall incidence of epilepsy is like 1.2% of people. The incidence in the autistic population is 20%. And Jay has mentioned, I think you know, that as many as 60% of those autistics, autistics, autism uh, spectrum disorder people, they have sub those subthreshold epileptic discharges, um, and uh, we need to be treating that. And to validate Jay's model, just in the last year, a study came out showing that the anticonvulsant Lamictal is helping those autistic patients. Um, so we talk about neurodivergent, neurotypical. I know that um, I know that there's always value in being um, compassionate and tolerant. And respecting differences. But I'll tell you that for some of the parents that I talked to, um, for them, it was a case of, look, I've tried everything. I can't change this behavior. I'm on my child. So I just hope that people, but you know what? They haven't, they haven't tried it. And it's a shame. And uh, a lot of them have been burnt. The meta studies though, for neurofeedback are saying that, uh, you know, it had a Mild to moderate effect on ADHD. I have a meta study of 30 studies. It said mild to moderate effect on ADHD, moderate to significant effect on depression, but then it said significant to superior effect on autism. And you know, an MD friend, he said, that's great. We don't have a treatment for autism. You know, they have therapies to help you manage the condition, but there's no drugs for autism that I'm aware of. There might be one in the Islamictal study. But I think there might be an experiment. There's probably an experimental drug is whatever. But but we have something here that could potentially help. I have another story about, you know, SMR, those subthreshold epileptic events. SMR is very often, Jay, I, I'll sing its praises all day long too, helps with those epileptic convulsions, the paroxysms in the brain. Well, uh, I know someone who was sitting in their neurofeedback office and there was a young man next to him that began talking to him. And they said, why are you, why are you here? What are you here for? If I could ask. Um, and he said, I'm here for autism. Um, before I did neurofeedback, I was nonverbal until I was like 15. And, 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 and obviously he's speaking to them now. And he said, so it's really helped. Um, and he said, you know what else? Uh, he, until I did neurofeedback, um, I, I was nonverbal. All I could do was moan. And the reason I was moaning was I had such an awful stomach pains. And uh, SMR is associated, SMR is what they were doing. And they were doing it at the temples as well as the motor strip. 
And um, SMR waves are associated with parasympathetic function because they're associated with GABA, and GABA is the main inhibitory system. In the body, you think of rest and digest, you think of relaxation. So GABA can cause relaxation. Uh, anyway, there's a suggestion that they're related, and people have, rep- I have seen reports, and to be honest, I think I get benefit uh, to digestion from, from SMR neurofeedback. So there's all kinds of things we can help with. Um, and we just need to get this knowledge out there and you're doing the best job of it that I can think of, you and Jay, of getting it out there to people. And Jay's doing it every day on Facebook and you're doing it every day on Facebook. Um, there's other great people that I, that I talk to and they're Josh Moore, Jay Gaddis. Um, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the level of stress, I, I know people that have worked in, uh, that have worked with, um, organizations for the benefit of um, people with special needs and it can be a burden and the idea that this is just take epilepsy you know Sherman showed that this can help epilepsy way back in the 60s but if you go on epilepsy forums right now on Facebook I mean I was in groups with tens of thousands of people and I was searching for the word neurofeedback and there were no there were no posts on this thing I'm still often the only person telling people about this so you know, you ask me what I'm doing. Um, I'm trying to help people with every way I know how, and that includes information.